God. This is, you've just been welcomed to a worship session right now, and that's what we will do together. It's just worship God one, with one another for all of his glories in the Lord Jesus Christ. Look at verse 31 again. Look at it with your own eyes, in your Bible, not on the screen. What then shall we say to these things? Here's, the, here's what he says which is just another question that leaves us wondering how can we even think about this fairly. But this is what he says. Here's what can be said. If God is for us, who can be against us? If God is for us, and this is the the basis of the promises tonight, God is for us. He is for us. He has bound himself to be for us. We know that he is for us, and this is not really even an if. It's a since God is for us. Who is the us? The us is is the, the same group that he's been talking about the whole chapter. Those who are not condemned, those who have the spirit, who are his sons, who are waiting for an inheritance in glory, those who have faith in Jesus Christ. That is the us. God is for us. Those who love him, those who have been loved by him, there is no one against us. If God is for us, who can be against us? Now, this doesn't mean that there are no adversaries against you in the Christian life. It couldn't mean that. Paul's about to, in verse 35 until 39, just list a whole litany and conglomeration of enemies and adversaries against us. He doesn't mean that there's no adversaries. He just means that there's none that matter. There's just none that even measure on the scales. None that even compare. And and their teeth have been removed by the promise of verse 28. Verse 28 says, We know that for all those who love God, all things work together for good. All things are working out God's eternal purpose in Christ For you. So if there is no enemy that God is not ultimately using for your good, then there is no enemy that is ultimately against your good. There just isn't anything that is really even worth saying that is against you because God is for you. I could ask you to list. All of the things in your life, in your past, in your current situation, all the things that are, that are aiming against you, that are opposing you, that are, that are difficult against you, that are, that are driving you into the dust, that make you feel worthless, that make you feel hopeless, that in your darkened hours when you forget all the promises of Romans 8, you think, surely my, my salvation itself will be stripped from my soul. Those things which you list, which are genuine hardships, genuine sufferings, and genuine sorrows, all of them listed. And, and maybe you could, you could paint the, the whole wall that is around us with all of the lists of those things which harm you. Still, nothing would come up in answer to the question, who is genuinely against us in a way that makes any difference to the immutable purposes of God? None. The second Kings chapter 6 tells us this story of, of Elisha, the, the man of God. And, and his servant, and, and it's, it's funny how it works out, the, the, the enemy king, I, I, it was the Syrian king, who, who kept on moving his armies to, around in order to attack the king 
of Israel and Elisha was a prophet. So God just kept on telling him where the armies were moving and then he would tell the king of Israel and they would just up the camp and move across the field or move around a mountain and set up camp again. And, and the king of the enemy was getting so infuriated and he, he starts lining up all of his, his, his advisors and his trusted people and his inner circles and holding them at blade length and, and saying, who's telling the Israelites what I'm doing? Who's, who's the spy? Who's the informant? Where's the mole? And one of them says, it's, it's none of us, it's Elisha. God speaks to him directly what you say in your bedroom. So he says, that's it. That, that's our solution. We go and we kill Elisha. And he had no idea what he was getting himself into. <laughs> the army of the Syrians go and gather around the camp of Elisha. The, the, a full army around him. An entire phalanx of soldiers and, and, and war-ready Weapons, <clears throat> says this in 2 Kings verse, uh, chapter 6. When the servant of the man of God, that is Elisha, early morning, dawn's just about breaking and he goes out to do his, his morning business on a, as you do on a camping trip, Jance, he finds a nearby tree and, and as he looks up, as, as the sun is sort of breaking over the horizon, he went out and behold, an army of horses and chariots was all around the encampment. And the servant said, Alas, my master, what shall we do? He said, Do not be afraid. For those who are with us are many more than those who are with them. And then Elisha prayed this, this merciful prayer and said, O oh Lord, please open his eyes that he may see. So the Lord opened the eyes of the young man, Elisha's servant, and he saw, and behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. Elisha was sitting there perfectly at peace because he could see the Syrians. He could see the horses and the blades and the army that was coming to try and kill him. But beyond them, uh, around them, above them, he could see the chariots of fire, the, the seraphim, the cherubim, the angels, the ministers of fire sent from heaven to protect them. And, and he prays. The, the same prayer that Paul prays as he writes Romans 8. The same thing that I've been praying over you as a congregation, as I've been reading and preparing in Romans 8, 31 and 32. Oh, Lord, open your servants' eyes. Let them see beyond the assignments and the bills and the family dramas and the death and the sickness and the, and the stresses and the, and the horrors and the persecutions and the lies and the slanders and, and all the ministries and everything that piles up. Lord, open our eyes so that we can see that he who is with us is much greater in number, much greater in power, much greater in love and permanence than they who are against us. If God is for us, nothing can be against us. Octavius Winslow, was a, he was a contemporary of, of Charles Spurgeon. He, he preached in England and, and he wrote on this verse saying, there is much against us, isn't there? Though there is nothing ultimately able to take us down, this is the miracle of the verse. That Paul can say this in light of how much is against us. He says, Satan is against us. All his force, all his wisdom, all his malice, all his subtlety and skill, and all his medians, all of the are exerted and marshaled in tremendous opposition to the interests of the child of God. Let the histories of David and, and of Job and the stories of Joshua and Paul, and yes, even the Lord himself testify to the truth of this. 
the world too is against us. It will never forgive the act by which we broke from its, with, from its thraldom, renounced its sway, relinquished its pleasures, and resigned its friendships. But we add to these forms of hostility that of even our own hearts. And after all that we have said of Satan and the world, the most powerful and treacherous foe is the one which we cherish in our bosoms. Oh yes, the sin that dwells in us. A heart deceitful and wicked. And, and, and the body of corruption and death which we bear within us and all around us. This is our great enemy. With this mighty phalanx, that means an army, opposed to him, is it not a marvel that any child of God should ever maintain his stand and at last arrive at heaven. But the wonder ceases when our eye lights upon these words, if God be for us, who can be against us? Christian, every day you wake up still believing in Jesus, you are a walking miracle. The powers of Satan, the, the strength of the sway of this world, the, the temptating and sinful forces of your own heart, every single one of them were not able to destroy your salvation yesterday. It, it's, a, it's a marvel and, and a wonder that when you go to bed tonight, whatever else is going poorly, whatever other temptations are running around your soul, as long as you go to bed still believing in Jesus, you are an amazing, unbelievable, walking miracle that these forces have still not been able to destroy the faith which binds you to Jesus Christ. But as Octavius said, it's not really a wonder at all, is it? Because verse 31 says that God is for us. How silly to then even put in the scales next to God uh, on the other side to put in Satan, the world, temptations, and all of the other curses that come against us. What could even be mounted against God? On one hand, you're, you're a living miracle. On the other hand, you're, you're the most logical, ordinary thing in the world. God made you alive and promises to keep you. What then? What are you worried about? Paul wants us. To think, let the impossible then become expected. Let us think of the, the ridiculous impossibilities become a matter of course. Let the extreme become obvious when we remember that God is for us. What can be against us? This is not some strange exception to the rule. This is the most ordinary logical reality that there could ever be. That if God is for us, nothing can meaningfully be against you is for you. Your vexation and trembling of spirit, your disease, your horror, your suffering, the death of loved ones, the poverty and strife that might be striking you, anxious rattling of the heart due to life's pressures. There, this, this in Romans 8.31, this is no argument against their reality. It is merely an argument against their power to do anything for you that is not good. Nothing exists in your life that poses a single threat to your salvation because God is for you. There is no threat to your salvation. There is no threat to your salvation whatsoever. God is for you. Here, Octavius Winslow again. I, I, I know I'm reading a lot of him, but if you read him, you'd understand. This is in, in, in a book, Christ for Us. In the most comprehensive meaning of the words, he is for 
us. Think of it. His love is for us. His perfections are for us. His covenant are for us. His government extending all over the world and his power over all flesh is for us. There is nothing in God, nothing in his dealings, nothing in his providences, but what is on the side of his people. Enshrined in his heart, engraved on his hand, kept as the apple of his eye, God forms a mighty bulwark for his church. As the mountains are round about Jerusalem, so the Lord is round about his people from henceforth even forever, he quotes the psalm. In Christ Jesus, holiness, justice, and truth unite with mercy, grace, and love in weaving an invincible shield around each believer. There is not a purpose in his mind, not a feeling in his heart, nor an event of his providence, nor an act of his government that the security and the well-being of his people. What Joshua said to the children of Israel, who were trembling to encounter the giants of Anak, may truly be said to us, to every believer in view of his foes, the Lord is with us. Fear them not. Think of every struggle, every fear, every sin, every problem, temptation, anxiety, Every part of your past, think how checkered it is. Think of, think of the dark threads that have woven your past. Think of, the, think of the things that you've done that you would never want repeated, that, that you appreciate when the pastor never brings up, but think of them now. Think of your horrible past, the, the trials of your past, the, the things that God has brought you through. Maybe, maybe even before you were converted, the ways God just saved your life. He spared you from what would have been a terrible marriage, uh, uh, an end of your life, uh, a life-crippling addiction. I don't know what God saved you from, but, but think of your past and how checkered it is and, and composite of worries. Yet, here you are, right here. Think of how, how, how deep the valleys, how wide the rivers, how, how sluggish the swamps, how high the mountains and treacherous the roads of your path in your past have been, and yet God designed every inch of the map, and here you are. And he will ensure that you will not go any further if it does not do you good, and you will not go any further if it is not down the path of salvation. He will ensure your completion of the path set before you. And so we see, through many toils, dangers, and snares, we have already come. Twas grace that brought us safe thus far, and grace will lead me home. Amazing grace is what we see. There is nothing that can be against us. I, I was reading this uh, uh, a story, not quite a biogra an autobiography, but, but at least the, the accounting of Jonathan Goforth. The account of Jonathan Goforth, the, the name of the book is By My Spirit. And he was a, a Presbyterian, a, 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 a revivalist, an evangelist, and a missionary to Manchuria, which is high northeast China, over, over on the coast of the sea and bordering part of Russia and Mongolia, a treacherous part of the world. And, and back in 1908, he saw by God's grace, just in the, in the wake of the Korean revival down to the south, there was a great explosion of revival under his ministry in Manchuria. And he's telling the story in this book. And, and, and I thought, I need to share that with you, not because you hear it and, and immediately 
see any connection to this text, but just because God's so good. And it goes like this. He's, he, there's, there's these small prayer meetings exploding around the, the areas that he's ministering to where these indigenous Chinese elders and pastors are working together with Western missionaries to bring the gospel to their communities and they're dry and they're, they're bleak. But as, as God pours out revival through the visitation of, of go forth to these different areas, so these people are swept into a, a, a confession of sin, a praying to God and people are coming and being saved. And there was this one man, the the son of a a Christian, and he was a horrible, drunkard gambler. But he was good at his gambling. It's not as if he'd gotten poor. He was was bankrupting other people, his his kinsmen, the Chinamen. He was was bankrupting them and getting rich off their losses. And he was traveling all about, and and, and he, he was on his donkey one day in the mountains, and he needed to go way up north to go and collect from these these people, his monies. And so he got on, on, the, on the donkey and he, he started riding north and the donkey just stopped in its path. And so he gets off and he does the usual thing that a gambling drunkard does when, a, when an ass is acting that way on the road and he grabs his stick and he smashes it over, over head and tail and foot and it would not move. He hadn't read Numbers 22, had it? Yeah, he hadn't read Balaam's donkey. And, and so he whacks it and smashes it and doesn't move. And and so it turns around and, and starts moving south. And he thinks, well, there's people who owe me money south as well. So on the donkey he gets and he starts going south. And, and he gets to this southwest, southeast fork in the road. And he needed to go southeast. The donkey wouldn't go. He, he got off and, and he dragged the donkey. He would put now, he, an 100 kilo man would not be able to move a stubborn donkey that wants to stand still. He couldn't do it. He couldn't budge it an inch. And, and it turned itself southwest. And started walking. Well, he jumped on its back. It's got people that owe me money southwest as well. It's not as much, but, but that'll do. And so he jumped on and, and he was going through and, and he passed by a town and stopped right outside of a little brick church. And in the church, there was people calling upon God for mercy. There was, there was people preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ and, and deep in prayer. And, and out of curiosity more than anything else, he said he got off his donkey And he walked up the stairs, and he goes into the doors, and immediately beside him is somebody pleading to God for mercy for their sins. And to the other side, giving public confession of their sin. And and he himself feels as if he has been brought directly to this place by God. He finally caught on. And there he is. He, He gives public confession. He tells people what he has done, what sins he has committed, and clings to the hope of eternal life in Jesus Christ and is there saved, discharges all of his, the, the debts that are owed him, and, and he's a Christian. Now, here's the great thing. What can be against us? Nothing. If you're alone in a mountain, the only other living thing around you is a donkey, God is not short of industry. God is not short of, of his tools or his instruments. No matter where you go, no matter what you do, God will achieve his purposes. This is a great promise. If God is for us, what can be against us? Nothing. Even the dumb donkeys will do his bidding to accomplish his purposes in your life. Believe what verse 32 says. He who did not spare his own son. God did not spare his own son. All things are working out for our good, as verse 28 told us. All things are 
able to work out for our good. The, the teeth and the fangs of all of the evils of the world have been removed for us because they were placed upon Christ's heart. The reason all things, even the evil, can work for our good is because all of the evil in those things were laid upon Christ and caused him to suffer. He has taken the curse and the sting out of every death for every Christian. He tasted the burn and the cursing and the dregs of the the cup of wrath for every Christian. He has drunk all of the evil so that we may experience all of the good. God did not spare him so that he can spare us. And he shall. And he has. But God could not spare us and spare his own son. It is not a, a fact that God loved us more than he loved his son, and, and so he kicked Jesus out in order that he might gain us, but rather with infinite eternal love for his son, he had an equally infinite eternal love for those in his son because that's what union means. If you're in Christ, then you have everything the Father gives Christ, including the eternal, infinite love wherewith he foreknew you before time ever began. God loved us equally to the amount to which he loved his son. That sounds blasphemous. You're going to think I'm crazy saying it. You go look up the great Reformed teachers, the great the, the Bible itself. You will see nothing less than this, that God loves you with the self-same love with which he loves his eternally begotten son. That's what union with his son means for us. And so God would have both. He would give to his own son everything he could ever possibly deserve and then also give to us everything we could never even possibly imagine. He would have us both, but it would come at the cost of Jesus Christ. Murray, Murray says this, John Murray, a, a commentator on, 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 on this verse, as, as we consider this, God did not spare his son. He gave him, but he did not withhold anything from his son that was needed. Murray says this, God did not withhold or lighten one whit of the full toll of judgment executed upon his own well-beloved and only begotten son. There was no alleviation of the stroke, for, Isaiah 53.10, it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He hath put him to grief. There was no mitigation. Judgment was dispensed upon the Son in its unrelieved intensity. Spared not, here in Romans 8.32, expresses nothing less. It is God who delivered up Jesus and then spared him not, meaning not just that he sent him to the earth for for the Jews or the Romans or the Gentiles or the the, the, the evil sons of men to, to come and kill. No, it is God ultimately who killed his Son. And in the killing of his son, he did not withhold anything. Not an ounce of of the force of his blow against his own son was held back. Everything. Nothing was spared. Everything was given. The full weight of God's wrath, punishment, and judgment that was deserved for our sins was laid fully and wholly upon Christ. He delivered him up. He made the blessed one become a curse, Galatians 3. He made the righteous one become sin itself, 2 Corinthians 5. He made him a sacrifice of propitiation, Romans 3. He absorbed God's wrath, perished under its weight, and expired in his human nature, dying and being buried. For whom was Jesus offered up? 
for whom does the Bible say? Your text right in front of you. What does Romans 32 say? For whom was Jesus Christ, God's only son, offered up? For you. For you who have come to him by faith, weak as you are, failing as you may feel, imperfect as you may truly be, for you, Jesus, was offered up. Here in verse 32. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. Who's the us? Everybody Romans 8 has been talking about. The chosen of God. Those who come to Christ by faith. But all of us. Not the extra spiritual ones. Not the the ones who are elders or deacons. or, Or those who have done a certain amount of good. All. All of those who have come to Jesus by faith can say truly, Though God, I deserve not an ounce of it. Jesus was offered up as the promised sacrifice for me. This is the glory. If Jesus' sacrifice is for us, what can be against us? God will never, God will never excuse or or simply rub away or sweep under the rug human sin. He will never do it. God will never ever excuse sin or acquit the guilty. And the cross of Jesus Christ is the greatest and most perfect proof of that. If God was ever going to excuse sin, it would have been when his son came up to the bar of the courtroom. If there was anything in God's heart that leaned even slightly towards ever making an exception to his law and his infinite justice, it would have been shown and exposed when his own son came in human flesh carrying our records. But when even the son of God comes into the presence of God, before the justice of God, and is crushed with a destruction and judgment that showed no holding back, then we know God will never, ever withhold an ounce of his divinely deserved justice. He lets no sin go unpunished. And yet at the same time, God will never, ever punish somebody who trusts in Jesus. A forgiven sinner will never be punished or even hated or even God will not feel like he wants to punish you at all. Why? Because the cross stands as the perfect proof of that. That if on the cross of Jesus, God was fully and entirely exhausting his wrath so that we can say, as we just sung, and many good hymns do, that God is satisfied with the sacrifice of Jesus. If Jesus cries out, it is finished, and God agrees because he raises him up from the grave and says, it is finished. Now rule and reign. Make all your enemies your footstool. Be the glorified Messiah from here until the end of eternity. If God says that, if Jesus said it's finished, if on the cross God was satisfied, then there is There is nothing we can ever give. Nothing we can ever be required to give. Nothing we will ever need to provide. Our sins are forgiven. God will never let his children be lost. And this is the third thing that the cross is a proof of. He'll never let sin go unpunished. He'll never punish someone for whom Christ died. And thirdly, God will never lose one of his children. The cross is the proof of that. And this is where the logic of the very next verse goes. Since God is for us, even to this degree, that he gave his only son, if God is for us, how will he not also with him 
graciously give us all things. If God has given his own son, how is there anything else that he would be unwilling to give? Now, we sometimes think the other way. If you've got like crippling anxiety and you hate asking people for things and and they go and cook you a meal and they forgot to give you cutlery, you're the anxious person sitting there going, it's fine, I'll eat with my face. I'll eat with my hands. They went to all this effort. I don't need to ask. I don't need to bother them. It's like you go to Macca's and they give you the wrong meal. Some of you guys, and I love you, you'll stand up and you say, come here. I didn't order this. You'll make a scene. You'll do whatever you need to do to get your girl her chips, right? Others of you are crippled anxiety and you'll say, it's, it's wrong, but it's okay. Look at how much effort they went to. They're on minimum wage. They're probably got a uni assignment due their job sucks, people are yelling at them through the drive-thru, it's fine. Paul's beckoning us not to think of God as some minimal wage Macca's employee. Can I say it that way? Don't think of God as somebody who went to all this effort and he's kind of the manipulative mother and he's, he's giving you some gift and then standing over you going, don't you dare ask for anything else. I've done my bit, I did my part, what else are you going to ask for? That's not God. That's not God. He's making an argument from the greater to the lesser. He's saying if God gave everything he had to give in his son, if he gave that one thing that he loved equally to his own self, because it is him, but in a son, if he gave his own son for you, what else could he ever not be willing to give? If if the greatest was given freely, without any of us ever asking, because none of us thought to ask, without any of us ever twisting his arm, because none of us were even seeking him in his salvation, if he freely invented of his own free choice to give to us his son, then how is there anything that will ever, as he goes to get it out of his wallet, make him think, that's a bit much. Can, can I do without that? Do they deserve that? Friend, we don't deserve anything we've received. And he freely gave Jesus. How then can he withhold anything else? It is as if God has filled the feast for us in this amazing, glorious uh, uh, banquet. And, and we sit down, and, and then the question that comes out of the child's mouth is, this is great, amazing, but Dad, you, this, this, this question is going to annoy you. Am I allowed to eat it? Like, like we stand here with, with all the glories of the promises in Jesus Christ, and then we foolishly ask, but, but what things are off limits. What, what things am I not? Uh, how much is too much to ask God for help in this, my Christian life, offering? It's the table's been set. How can we sit down and then ask of something else? It's, it's as if He has filled up the whole reservoir with the water of grace, and then we ask, but am I allowed to drink it? It'll, it'll lower the limits, it'll, it'll take away. Am I allowed to drink some? And He says, This is why it's filled. It's like the father who, who goes and, 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 and gets the splinters and the bleedings and the, and the pain of, of chopping wood and bringing it back to the campfire for his family. And, and he builds it and for hours he's getting blisters on his hands because he didn't bring a lighter. And, and here he is in survival mode with his family and he finally builds the fire and it starts to crackle and glow. The child stands back and says, Dad, am I allowed to take some of its warmth? And here's God, as, as if saying through Paul, I did all of this. You're disrespecting the gift to not ask more. This is why I gave him to you. That in him there might be every need met. If God gave Jesus his son, it is therefore proof, as if he needed to prove it, 
that he will give us everything we need to get us to heaven. Now, now in Genesis 22, we see Abraham's giving of his own son. I don't have time to tell the entire story, but this was God's test to Abraham that he would give in obedience to God. He would give up to death his own and one beloved son of promise, the, the miracle child that they had in their old age, Isaac. He was told, go up to the mountain, this same mountain Jesus died on. They'd go up to the mountain year, thousand, 2,000 years beforehand and, uh, and Abraham would take him and go to the top and, and kill his son. And this would be God's test to Abraham. Will he do what I tell him? Will he fear me? As Abraham binds up his son with, with, the, with the confidence that God will provide the ram if necessary, will provide the lamb if needed. He raises the knife and God stops him by the voice of an angel. And, and this is what God says through that angel says to Abraham, the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here I am. He says, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing you have not withhold, withheld your son, your only son from me. Isn't it condescending in grace that God would say to us, I tested myself for you. Abraham, I made prove his faithfulness to me. And we can now in this, in this humble sense look towards God and say, you, as you said to Abraham, so now we can say to you, God, that you love me. He didn't need to prove it. He didn't need to, that, that, that he is not deserving that he would condescend so lowly to do that. We know, but yet we can say on the basis of God's revelation in the word, we can say, God, now I know that you love me for you have not withheld your son, your only son from me. And with him, will he not give us everything needful? Uh, on one hand, the logic of the argument is from the greater to the lesser. If he gave so much, how would he withhold anything smaller? On the other hand, the logic goes, if he has already spent the blood of his son, then why would he ever fail to spend that which makes the blood of his son worth it. In other words, if there is something keeping you from maintaining your faith, threatening your salvation, and dangling you over the precipice of hell, and, and that you might lose your salvation, and, and that you might not go to heaven, the very purpose for which Christ died, if that is a risk, then you can be sure God will meet it and make sure it does not eventually because otherwise, the purpose for which he gave the blood of his son would be wiped away. If, if, if a general, for say, uh, an example comes to mind, if a general is waging warfare to, to, to protect his city and, and propagate his family and, and defend the righteous from the, from the evil assailants, and, and in, in all of this, his son is captured and taken and put upon a great platform and, and dangled before the king and said, King, we will... We will kill your son. Just give us the city. Just, just lay down your arms or we will kill your son. If at that point he stands fast and says, I love my son, but I have a duty to the many more than merely my progeny. If at that point you, you might think he's crazy, you might disagree with his decision, whatever else you could say, if at that moment he said no and he watched his son be hung to death before his own eyes, the one thing you would never question is his commitment to the cause. It might be crazy. 
but nothing's stopping him from defending this city. And if, if at any point the, 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 the blades that need to be made, the, the coin from the treasury that needs to be spent, the, the death of soldiers on the field, if at any point the cost seems too much for him, or, or as you, a soldier on the field, uh, on the walls defending your city, if you think, at what point will the king say, too much has been lost, too much has been spent, let's withdraw from the battle, you, you would be encouraged to remember, no, no, he gave his son for this. He will not stop till he himself is perished. And this is how we think of God. We can say, if he held not back his son, if by his son's blood he has procured my salvation, then if anything is to take me away from God, if if anything is to destroy my salvation, then it would make the reason that he gave Jesus obsolete. It It would not just... If God does not give me what I need, it's not just that that's too expensive, it's that he wastes the giving of his son. Because the reason he gave his son, my life, my my salvation, my eternal inheritance is is gone. And so because of the buy-in, because of how much he has done for us in giving Christ, therefore he will never turn back on us now. Octavius Winslow says this, God has bound himself up to withhold no good from you. He has bound himself up. He can't do anything other. If he's going to glorify Christ, if he's going to be the true God who stands by his word, he must give you everything you need to get to heaven and from there to glory. So Christian, think about it. What do you need? Do you need strength for tomorrow? You'll have it in abundance. Do you need money? You'll have it whenever you need it. Do you need hope to get through? He will grant it. Do you need peace? It will be yours. Do you need the ability to pray? All the words will be granted to you. Do you need clothing? You will have them. Do you need words to stand firm for your faith? The words will be granted to your mouth. Do you need books or content to read? God will make sure they make their way to your hand. Do you need companionship in your loneliness? You will have it. Do you need wisdom for difficult circumstances? You must have it. Do you need a church to support you, to get you through? He will lead you to it. God has bound himself to withhold no good from you. But if we're really honest, do we really need any of that? Do we really need any of the things? Like like need to make it to glory. Do we need anything more than merely Christ? I mean, you could, you could be depressed, emptied of mental stability, alone, dejected, rejected, despised, hated, slandered, naked, in the ashes, diseased and dying, but then your enemies find you anyway and string you up by rope or pin you to a cross or skin you alive like the apostle or, or, or stick you to a stake and burn all of the wood around you if If that was to happen, is your salvation in even the slightest bit more jeopardy? Not at all. You'll be in heaven and you'll be fine. All things will be well. And yet, God's promise is what you need, you will have. What you do need is faith. This is probably the point of the Christian's greatest fear. Of all other things that come against me, what if my faith fails? And the promise is that he will uphold it in every moment until we see him face to face. You need pardon for your sins and the blood of Jesus has granted it. 
You need the word to show you the promises of God. And it is an open platter, right, set, and ready for you. You need the spirit to seal you for the day of redemption. Simply ask, for he is yours. And you need sanctification from sin day by day. So request it of God and you shall have it. Christian, God is for you. Nothing can stand against you. But what a fearful and terrible thing the writer of Hebrews says it is to fall into the hands of a living God, of the living God. That is, if, if your faith is not in Jesus Christ, if repentance and, and turning from sin like the gambler, dragged there by a donkey, I don't know what friend brought you to church tonight, but maybe it's similar for you. A stubborn donkey got you here. A mum that you didn't want to bring you to church. A friend that dragged you and convinced you to come. Or, or maybe your own conscience just burdened you like this, this stubborn ass of the story. And here you are. You don't love Jesus. You don't want his righteousness. You don't want heaven. And yet, you don't want hell. And to you, if you will simply turn to Christ and confess your sin, if you'll look to him and hold on to him by faith and call on him and say, Jesus, let your death be instead of me, save me, forgive me, redeem my soul from the pit of hell, then he will. And if you do not, and God is not for you, he is against you. And if God is against you, it doesn't matter what other things, money, health, friends, philosophy, religion, you have going for you. If God is against you, you will perish. Believe on Jesus and be saved. Let's pray. God, you are for us. You are for us. You are for all those that are in your son because you are perfectly, infinitely, in a way we will never be able to comprehend. You are for your son. As he prayed, so you will do. You will give to him the glory which he had in your presence before the beginning of the ages. And, and as you glorify him, you must honor and exalt and glorify and save and redeem and forgive and pardon and seal and protect all those who he has died for. Lord God, you will never dishonor your son by leaving behind any souls that he has paid for. Father God, we are, we are so thankful with words inexpressible. We are thankful that we are one of those, that we are one of those that he saw fit to come down and purchase. One that you despite our unworthiness, decided to choose to save. We are thankful because we have nothing to boast, nothing that leaned you in our direction, nothing that demanded any good from you, and yet you gave freely and full of grace. We thank you, Lord God, that we are one of his. We are thank you, thankful that, that we are bound up with him for our good, for his glory. We, we thank you for the unimaginably good promises that, that are here for us in Romans 8. We are thankful. Father God, I ask that you would give to those who do not believe, who are still enemies of the cross, who are still unbelievers of the gospel, that you would give to them now a taste of the Lord Jesus Christ, that you would open up their heart and pour in your light, that you would show them Jesus and, and push them towards him, that they would walk into the light and receive the promises that are his. Father God, we ask that you would give salvation and for all those who are, who are wavering and fearful and anxious and, and feeling weak, would you bolster them with this bulwark of a promise that if you are for us and since you are for us, there is nothing that can stand against us. We thank you, praise you, and pray all of this in the name of Jesus. And everybody said...
This sermon was preached at Hope Reformed Baptist Church in Logan, Australia. For more information about our church, visit our website at hoperb.church. If you have been blessed, please leave us a review wherever you listen. We pray this message has been used by God to grow and encourage you in your Christian walk. Thank you for listening. Soli Deo Gloria.